Well said. Amen. Well, kids, we're really grateful for the chance to worship with you, for you uh, being with you, being with us. We, We love the chance to do this. I want you to know that we really mean it. You are not the future of the church someday. You are the church right now, and we are grateful for you being here with us. At this time, I want to dismiss you to your kids' life classroom, so if you want to head out the back, your teachers should be um, ready to receive you. Where are they? Um, there they are. I see hands. We hope that you learn about Jesus. Have fun. As the kids head out, I want us to dive into God's Ephesians 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the cart in the back. Um, It's a a joy to be able to hear all the pages rustling. I don't know if you can make a noise while you scroll on your phone, but if you could do that, there would be a joy too. Um, We're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Thank you, Ross. Um, And I'll ask you to stand as we read, as I read God's word for us this morning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. You may be seated. Water, bread, and wine. Why has God's church for thousands of years been so obsessed with water, bread, and and wine. Why do we uh, these days roll out what to some people might look like a dunk tank and celebrate people being plunged beneath the waters? Why do we do what to some people looks like a, a snack break during worship and eat a wafer and drink some juice? Water, bread, and wine. Why are we so determined to hold on to these ancient practices that, that looked strange enough in the time of the early church but now might look to some as downright silly? Because of one word, grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. The people of God have held up the signs and the seals of water, bread, and wine for centuries because of grace. Yes, because Jesus commanded that we regularly engage in these signs and seals, but also because they are gifts of God's grace to his people. This morning, we're continuing our gospel culture series looking at at 12 traits of a biblical church by studying two practices that God has given his people to shape us with his incredible, upside-down, world-changing, radical, hard-to-believe grace. These two practices are known by a few different names, sacraments or ordinances, but this morning, I want us to see them for what they are, means of grace. Before we can get to these signs, though, 
we need to see what they signify. And that's where grace comes in. And this is why we call the means of grace. And so before we look at the means, I want us to look at the grace. You see, this morning, we're going to be splitting up our time into thirds. The first third of our time will be focused on defining grace. What is grace? What are we because of grace? And then the last two thirds of our time will be focused on communicating grace. How God communicates his grace to us through two means that he has commanded us to observe, baptism and communion. Here's my disclaimer, though. As with any sermon, morning, unless you wanted to stay here through lunch and dinner. I don't imagine you want to do that, right? Are you giving me that chance? No? No, no. There's a couple people that I knew would say yes to that. This morning, what I want us to do is to tie these means to the grace that they're communicating and then explain, at least at some level, how God communicates his grace through these particular means, through baptism and communion. There are whole books that have been written about all of these, and I can recommend many of them if you'd like. But I want us to tie in to Ephesians and then look at a couple other texts to see how the Lord has built his, his church around these. Fair enough? All right, let's, look, let's start with defining grace then by looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Look at the text. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, right? gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The, the, the first step to defining grace is seeing who we are apart from grace, who we are apart from God. And this text spells it out really clearly, even if it is also doing that really darkly. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, not just broken, not just struggling, not just a mix of bad and good, but, but dead, the text tells us. Unable to respond to God, unable to be who God has made us to be. We were, to uh, borrow a comic book title, The Walking Dead. Living in one sense, but not really living at all in the most important sense. We were slaves to those great enemies of humanity, the world, the flesh, and the devil following the ways of this world, uh, building and participating in a society with all of its values that are allergic to the God who made us, pursuing the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a, a, a nickname for the devil, terrorists following in the revolutionary steps of the original rebel, the devil himself, right? following him in his disobedience, in the devil, we also, like the text says, gratified, uh, uh, gave into, to use even crude language, pigged out on the cravings of our flesh. It is not so much that we didn't want to do it, but that we had to, that, that, that we wanted it at the core of our being. We, we, we wanted to rebel against the God who made us. We wanted to follow the father of lies, to build societies that resisted him, both inside and outside. The text tells us we were dead. And because of the death we embraced, our punishment was deserved. Deserving, justly deserving God's wrath because God is holy and righteous and the rebellion of, of the people he made could not be ignored. He, he couldn't look the other way. To do that would have meant that he was not holy and that evil was not what he said it was, truly evil. That it was just a, an accident of the free will that we have to overlook, live with now. No, our God did not turn away from us. He looked right at us in holy wrath, wrapped in holy love. Because the text tells us in verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is the the, the interruption of wrath, the the intervention of love. It is what, what changes who we are and shows us who we can be. Grace is the the, the but God of salvation. Grace is is defined by theologians as as getting what we don't deserve, right? We, We deserve wrath. Instead, he offers salvation. Getting what we don't deserve. And the the reason that I think we struggle with this so much is not so much that we, we don't understand it in our heads. It's that we struggle with it in our souls. It feels too good to be true. We forget that grace is not just some concept to master, but a, but a gift to be received. And so really quickly, I want to start there and see how defining it off, grace is a gift, the text tells us. It is something to be received, not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It has a price tag, but it's only so that we can see how much it actually costs. Look at verse 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, salvation from the sin that killed us is a gift that God gives us, not something we work towards. Our bank account's already empty. Things we try to do to erase all the ways that we rebel, that, that they're not going to actually work. To fully grasp grace, we must see it for what it is, a gift. It is only as gift that we truly appreciate and live into what that gift brings, right? It's not an accomplishment we brag about. It's not an achievement we can frame and put on the wall. It is a gift to be enjoyed and freely offered to everybody. None of us get to brag about being a Christian because we didn't earn our spot. It was given to us as a gift. And it had to be a gift because we couldn't earn our spot. There was nothing we could do to make it happen. Grace is not only a gift, it is a necessity. We we needed God to intervene. We needed God to to get in the way, so to speak. Because if we really believe what's in this text, rigor mortis had set in, and our, our hearts, apart from him, would never start beating again. We were dead, and we needed someone who could resurrect us. Look at verse 4 through 5 again. It is because of his great love that God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is God who, out of his great love and rich mercy, brought us back to life in Jesus. We were dead, and he resurrected us in Christ. Dead people don't talk. Dead people don't walk. Dead people don't repent and turn back to God. Dead people don't stop being dead unless someone with the power of resurrection intervenes. And that's why the gospel of grace is the gospel, the good news of grace. Because someone, the only one who could, did. He he got in the way. Grace is not just a nice gift that God gives, but something that we desperately needed and could have no other way but from his hands. The one whose wrath we deserved and who instead offers salvation. The question now is, how did he do that? Grace is not only a gift or a necessity, it's also expensive. That's what I mean when I say that grace has a price tag. Um, my, my extended family jokes every Christmas about price tags because there is a uh, certain member of our family who I asked if I could share this about them, 
who always leaves the price tag on the big gifts that they get people. Not because they want to brag about how much they spent, but because they want to brag about how much they saved. Hundreds of dollars in super sales and coupons, and I did not even pay close to what that tag says. Grace still has the price tag on it, not to brag about how much God saved on the discount rack, but to show us how much it actually cost him to save us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 explains it like this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The grace we receive as gift that, that, that we so desperately need in our dead spiritual state cost God everything. The Son of God became human in the person of Jesus and and not only lived for us, but died for us. He he died for us when we most deserved that death. Not because we actually deserved for him to do that for us. Not because we were righteous or good, but while we were still sinners, enemies of God, God sent his Son to die that by faith in his grace we might become his sons and daughters. This is defining grace. Not what we were apart from God, but what we can be because of him. Grace, not sin, now defines everyone who believes and confesses that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Why? The rest of our text in Ephesians 2 explains. Because God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Those of us who believe our our reality is, is life in Christ, putting on full display the riches of his grace, the kindness he showed to us in Jesus, the reality that we have been resurrected from our death and sin and now are really living. Now we are, in in some mysterious way, in Christ. And that means that our home is not our zip code, but Jesus. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are new creations, his, his handiwork, created, or like 2 Corinthians 5 explains, recreated in Christ for what? For good, to do good. Faith is not just believing in the grace of Christ, but living out the grace of Christ. And yet, we are not in heaven with him. Not yet anyways. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they still try to drag us away from life and back into death. They, they, they try to get us to confuse grace with works and make us depend not on the free gift of salvation, but on the, our hard work at being good, at, at being better, at being obedient enough to try to earn a spot with God. In a real and significant way, we truly have the grace of God in Christ, but we are not yet home, and we are not yet perfected. We are not glory with Jesus. To put it another way, the struggle is real. There is a war for our hearts and for our desires. Our old masters still believe that they can regain control. And so we fight, like Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Jesus has given us the gifts of the means of grace to fight here and now as his people. That we might not be deceived back into our old ways of life, but that we might continue to rehearse and live out the grace that he has given us in the gospel. The grace that defines us is also communicated to us regularly by two practices that are known as the means of grace. This is why I'm talking about this this morning. Because we're not yet to heaven, we're not yet perfected, and God has given us these particular practices to remind us of what he's done, but also to invite us to keep stepping into that grace. Here's a simple definition I've adapted from a theologian, Michael Horton, to explain what, what I mean when I say the, the means of grace. The means of grace are, are visible and outward signs of inward and invisible grace that shape the church. Visible and outward means they're, they're using ordinary means like, like bread and water and wine to display extraordinary realities. Grace that changes each of us individually and shapes us as God's people together, as, as people of grace they are real signs that point to something even more real, something much deeper, something more significant. The problem we sometimes have is like Calvin, another theologian would say, is that we confuse the signs with the reality. We think that the signs sometimes are, are, are powerful or magical, like, like when Catholicism or some other denominations believe that the bread and wine of communion actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. We, can, we confuse the signs for what they are pointing towards. Or, like Calvin says, we overcorrect and we then separate the signs from the reality that they point to. Like some Protestant churches thinking these acts are just symbolic, that they're, they're nothing special. I will say there's nothing uh, magical in the signs themselves, but Calvin cautions us to keep the signs and the reality together, to not jump off the cliff on either direction. These, these signs that point together in a, in a real and God-ordained way, I might remind you, that they actually communicate the grace of God that is received when they are received by faith. When they are received believing that God commanded these practices for his people, and that he has chosen to work through them to communicate his grace to us by faith. Again, to be clear, these signs alone do nothing. But by faith, we believe that God uses these signs to point us to a deeper reality, a deeper truth. And in that pointing, God makes us and shapes us and forms us in a spiritually meaningful way by his grace. Now, I've already mentioned them above, but the means of grace we're talking about are, are baptism and communion, two practices that were commanded by Jesus as something that each of us individually and all of us as a whole participate in as, as signposts of the gospel. The question sometimes comes up about something like baptism is like, well, pastor, do I need to be baptized to be saved? The same question can be asked in a similar way of communion. If I don't take communion, am I not saved, pastor? And though I think those questions actually come from the right place, Right? They kind of miss the point. We are dead in the water, so to speak, when we're working on these questions. No, baptism and communion, they, they don't save. But that doesn't mean that they're irrelevant or unimportant to God's people. The better question is actually, do you want an amazing gift that God has for you? Because baptism and communion are gifts that God has given his church. And too often we just treat them as things to check off the list. 
Baptism is given as, as grace to start and communion is given as grace to keep going. That same theologian I quoted earlier, Michael Horton, puts it similar when he writes, If baptism is the bath for the beginning of this journey, the supper, meaning communion, is the table that God spreads in the wilderness along the way. So I want to start us with the bath then, where all followers of Jesus, I think, should start with baptism. The testimony of Scripture is that baptism is something that God's Word tightly ties to conversion, to, to believing in Jesus and following Him for the first time. Mark 1.4, Acts 19.4, baptism is described as this, this baptism of repentance. And in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, we are told to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. We make disciples, baptize, and teach. That's the normal expectation of Scripture. Over and over again in Acts, we read about people who believe and then are baptized. In most circumstances, baptism should follow conversion. Now, there are exceptions, like the thief on the cross. Didn't stop the crucifixion. Say, like, hey, I just need to get some water on me first. But these exceptions, they do not change the rule. They actually stand out because they are exceptions. Baptism is something that Jesus commands believers to do as soon as they become believers. And more than that, though baptism is a gift of grace to start off our life in Christ, baptism is, 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 is a way, I'll repeat that. Baptism is something that Jesus commands believers to do. But what I want you to see is that more than that, baptism is a gift of grace that Jesus gives to believers to start off our life with him. In baptism, I think there are three ways that God communicates the gift of his grace to us. Together, we remember together, and we proclaim together. And I'll show you what I mean. We're going to be bouncing around a couple of scriptures. I'll try to, to not go to too many. But Galatians 3, 26 through 28 explains it like this. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For, reason, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is something that happens at baptism that the Bible points to as unifying. Something that happens that makes us one in Christ, where, where every other measure of difference, or even worse, division, loses its power to divide and instead become glorious gracious unity on display, unity in Christ. In baptism, we identify together with Christ, and it marks our identities with something deeper than our ethnicity, our social class, even our gender. We are marked off as the baptized, those who are in Christ, those who have been baptized into Christ. However, it's not only that we identify with Christ and even identify with each other with this new mark of identity. The, the passage we even read earlier, Romans 6, 1 through 4, goes further. It starts like this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know? Don't you remember Every time we celebrate someone's baptism, we identify with them, but we also remember with them. We, we, we say as a church that, that you belong to this family, but more than that, God is saying through these ordinary means that you belong to my family. 
And that identification we remember as a family. We, we remember that we were once dead and that by the grace of God we are now alive. We remember what he did for us. You see, baptism is not just for the person getting baptized. It is also for the church that celebrates and affirms that baptism. Like us, we say, you have been awakened not only to your dead state apart from God, but your new life that is in Christ. Sinners like us, now saved like us, and now commissioned to proclaim the gospel like us, we whisper as we watch someone getting baptized. But baptism is not just about identification or remembrance. It's also about proclamation. Look at verse 4 of that same text in Romans 6. We read it this, this morning. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In baptism, something incredible happens. Right? We, we identify with Christ as we plunge beneath the waters, proclaiming that Christ died and was buried for us, that we believe in him. And so we also are dying to our old way of life, to the enslavement of, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as we come out of the water, soaked all the way through, we proclaim that our sins have been washed away and we have been raised to new life. Not because the water has some magical holy property, but because Jesus has washed away our sins. We are spiritually resurrected like our Savior was physically resurrected now able by the Spirit to glorify the God who made us and live a new life in Christ. We proclaim the gospel in our baptism. And the church not only sees this, but participates in this. From the person baptizing to the church celebrating this new life in Christ, we, we proclaim together the gospel of Jesus. Again, not that water can wash away sins, but that only the blood of Christ can do that. And yet this water, this, this visible outward sign is, is testifying to and pointing us to an invisible and inward reality, the grace of God in Christ. Every Christian should be baptized, full stop. Not because it's a requirement of salvation, but because it's actually the first step of obedience to our Lord and Savior who commanded it. It is a, a public declaration of our allegiance Right? Like one pastor writes, baptism is putting on the jersey that says, Team Jesus. We publicly identify with Jesus and his people. In another way, as another pastor explains in a more sophisticated way, it is gospel theater. We see the movements of the gospel enacted before us. Not just as a matter of obedience or public decoration, but, but we step into baptism as an identity marker. Something that marks us off as in Christ saying that this is our first family, not our biological relationships, but our gospel relationships. Now this morning, across our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia, we actually have over 20 people that are declaring this very thing, pledging their allegiance to Christ and his people through baptism. And though we're not baptizing anyone here this morning, I still wanted to actually show you a video we put together of all the testimonies. The reason I want to do this is because I want us to celebrate our new family members and what Jesus has done. Because I want everyone to listen to these testimonies and at the same time remember what Jesus has done for you. If you've been baptized, to remember your baptism. And also, if you haven't been baptized yet, to as you watch, reflect and pray on one question. Why not? Let's watch this video.
Adeline Safer, and today I'm going to get baptized because once I learned that baptism is telling everyone I'm a Christian, I wanted to um, be baptized. My name is Rita. I'm a member of the Wheaton Bible Church Cry Fellowship. I am getting baptized today because I want to follow Jesus the rest of the fellowship. My faith in Christ that He is Lord and Savior who died for my sin has brought me here to be baptized. My name is Holly Hood. I am a member of WBC, my fellowship. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm happy to be baptized today. My name is Isabel Seafoot. Today, I'm getting baptized because I want to put on the clothes of Christ. Hi, I am Lucas and I want to get baptized because I want everyone to know that I am a follower of Jesus. Hola, mi nombre es Ivonne López y estoy emocionada de decirles que hoy me van a bautizar. Y estoy emocionada porque quiero anunciar a todos que Jesús es mi Señor y Salvador. Hola, mi nombre es Ana Fariñas y me siento muy feliz y emocionada al saber que voy a sellar una nueva vida con Jesucristo por medio del bautizo. Grace Leiva y yo me bautizo como muestra de mi deseo de caminar y crecer con Cristo. Hola, mi nombre es Marta Nájera. Estoy muy emocionada de ser bautizada y compartir con todos ustedes que amo a Jesús y declaro que Él es mi único Salvador. Hi, my name is Benny. In declaration of my love for Jesus, I've chosen to be baptized today in acceptance of Him as my Lord and Savior. Hello, my name is Anthony Chan. I am a member of WBC Kamaya Christian Fellowship. I am excited to be baptized because I want to repent and follow in God. My name is Emily Puth. I'm a member of Wheaton Bible Church's Khmer Fellowship, and today I'm getting baptized because I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I want to take our relationship a step further. Hola, mi nombre es Denise Solorio. El día de hoy me voy a bautizar y en agradecimiento por el amor que me tiene. Él sin merecerlo me rescató, me perdonó y me justificó en nombre de su amado hijo, mi rey y salvador Jesús. Hola, mi nombre es Javier Solorio. Me siento privilegiado de ser escogido por Dios y con mi bautizo quiero dar testimonio de fe hacia Cristo como mi Rey y Salvador. Because Jesus saved me and I'm excited to take the next step in my faith. I'm Charles Sanchez and I'm getting baptized today because I'm ready to take the next step of my faith. Hi, my name is Jonathan Crone and I want to get baptized to show how much I love Jesus and how much I want to pledge my life to Him. My name is Emma. And the reason I am getting baptized today is because I wanted to show everyone that I am a child of God. Hello, my name is Gabriel Gonzalez, and I'm getting baptized today to celebrate and proclaim my love for my Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Dorcas. I'm from Africa. I love Jesus, and I want him to change my life. My name is Glory Lucusa. I'm part of the African French community. Uh, I want to get baptized because I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save my life, and I want to walk in Jesus. I want to share that because this is our family in Christ, even though we're across zip codes, and not many people are getting dunked in water, so to speak to symbolize their death to their old way of life and their new life in Christ. Familia, I want to be able to encourage you by saying, remember your baptism. So many of us struggle to remember the moment that Jesus saved us. Some of us know, might maybe know the exact date. It was June 14th of 1974, and I was sitting in a 
But many of us were not saved in an instant. We were saved over time, and it's hard to pinpoint the date of our salvation, but that's baptism. So that we could have an obvious day we can look back to, that we can remember, and we can even remind each other of when we doubt. When we struggle, when we are anxious about our salvation, or we are even entertaining sin, we can turn to each other and we can say, remember your baptism. That's what God does over and over in his letters to these early churches. He calls people through the words of Paul and Peter and the apostles to remember that they were baptized into Christ. We've read some of those passages this morning. That that as real as the waters were, as real as their plunge into the water and the, the gasping breath out of the water was, so real was their salvation, their conversion, the, the true communication of God's grace to them. Not because we identify with Jesus. We remember what he did and we proclaim the good news of his salvation. Baptism is grace to start, grace to look back on, grace to hold tight to. It is a one-time event in the life of a believer, right? We don't need to get baptized over and over again just to make sure it sticks because what makes it stick is the Spirit of God in us. But even while baptism is a one-time thing, there is something different about our next means of grace. You see, communion is not just one time. It is over and over and over again. It is a meal that communicates grace to us by the Spirit of God. It is grace to keep going. Similar to baptism, I want to explore how communion does those three things, how it identifies us together and with each other and with Christ, how it calls us to remember together what he has done in the gospel, and how it proclaims the gospel through the ordinary means of bread and wine. And I, and I keep saying wine because this is the normal way that the scriptures speak about communion. But in our church family, we have chosen to use grape juice instead to remain true to the vine imagery that the Bible uses, but to also make space for people who might struggle with alcohol to be able to participate with us in communion, to not reignite old sins or exclude anybody. And though there are multiple passages we can look at for communion, I want to take us to just two chapters, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, where a real-life church is being encouraged to take communion for what it is, a, a gift of God's grace. So 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 17 Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Writing to the church in Corinth, Paul tells them to flee idolatry, to to stop pursuing idols and run in the opposite direction. Why? Because of communion. The cup that we drink and the bread that we break are not just nice additions to a nice meal, but in a mysterious and spiritually significant way, it is a participation in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ. Without, remember, confusing the sign for the reality it points to at communion, We identify with Jesus. In verse 17, we identify with each other. The many are one in Christ as we share the one loaf. Not just a physical bread, but of the one who calls himself the bread of life in John 6. Communion is our dinner invitation. Hanging over the dinner table in my house in the Solomon home, we have a sign That says this, the the best memories are made when gathered around the table. It's a fancy Hobby Lobby sign we got on sale somewhere when we moved in. 
we wanted to remind ourselves to make memories around the table. But when I saw it this week, I thought to myself, that's what communion does. Saying the same thing to us. Gather around my table and let your memory be shaped by my grace. This is participation in the gospel as one body in Christ. Identifying with Christ and with each other as, as we take this meal together. But it's actually more than identification because it's this remembrance piece that's so important. In the very next chapter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25, these verses, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the passage that I've been using every time we take communion. The reason I'm using that is not only because it talks about communion, but like Paul is here reenacting for the Corinthians what Jesus did at the table. Jesus commanded us to regularly practice communion, not just so that we sit across the table from people that are unlike us in every way except for being in Christ, but also so that together, as this most unlikely family, we would remember. Remember his sacrifice. Remember his body broken and his blood poured out. Remember the covenant he made, the the, the covenant he died to make. Remember how expensive his grace is, how he gave his life to purchase our salvation. Remember. Whenever you eat this bread and you, you break it between your teeth, that not only are we the body of Christ and not only is the body of Christ real, but it was really broken for you and for me. Remember. Whenever you drink this cup and taste its sweetness on your tongue, how sweet it is to be forgiven of all of your sins and how bitter his cup was for us. The scriptures say that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. We who were by nature, by the reality of being dead in our sins, deserving of God's wrath, we received not wrath but salvation because Jesus took his wrath entirely on himself. Remember. Now, most of you know that I grew up in Miami, Florida. It is. In a house that was always filled with these, the, the best smells and the best tastes. Right? Café con leche in the morning, ropa vieja at lunch, tres leches at night, and all the Latinos said. <laughs> we'll have dinner someday of my mom's kitchen. And to this day, those smells and those tastes bring me right back to that family table. I'm sure you have your own memories like that. Food has this way of of, of shaping our memory. In the same way, the experience of communion is meant to, to transport us by faith to the grace of our Savior, to shape our memory collectively, not just individually, right? This isn't date night with Jesus. This is a family meal, Together, remembering, looking back and looking forward. Because we're not just identifying together and we're not remembering together, but we're also proclaiming together. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Together, we not only identify with each other and with Jesus at the table, we, we not only remember what he has done, we, we also proclaim the gospel. We, we preach the gospel to each other. Gospel past, but gospel future. We proclaim until he comes. This is, this is a meal on the way, right? One writer describes it a little bit crudely as a, as a meal to go. 
It is a rhythm of hope that God has commanded us to participate in. Because we don't just need to remember grace, we need to practice grace. We need to hope in the grace that is to come. All those smells and tastes that were coming from my mom's kitchen, there were times where she would give me the chance to lick the spoon. My favorite was when she was making suspiritos, which I'll explain is this this baked puffs of merengue or meringue for the uninitiated. They're these puffy, airy, full of sugar. I, I loved these things as a kid. And when she was done, I would get the chance to lick the spoon that she used to put them on the baking pan. And it was gloriously filled with so much sugar. And still, it wasn't really what I wanted. Like, like, like stealing a bite of meat from the wok or, or getting a, a taste of soup in the crock pot, communion is a taste of what's to come. If eating this cracker and drinking this juice is disappointing, that's because we're all waiting for the royal banquet in the dining hall of heaven when Jesus returns. Smith calls a, a sanctified letdown. This isn't the full meal. It is meant to, to, to make us thirst and hunger for more. To draw our minds and, and hearts together to the day when Jesus will return to finish what he started. In communion, we identify together with Christ and with each other as familia. We remember together like, like family retelling stories around the table. We, we retell the gospel to one another. And like pilgrims on the way, it is a proclamation. An act of hopeful resistance that someday Jesus will return and make everything right and we will eat with him at his table, not as enemies conquered, but as adopted sons and daughters. Amen? Because familia eats together. At the table, we are welcomed by Jesus. We are wanted by Jesus. We sit at the table as those who have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we also sit at the table as those who need his grace day in and day out. Because we have not arrived yet. It is a meal on the way. A, a spread in the wilderness on our long journey home. It is, it is a sign of what he has done and how he feeds us by his grace. And it is a seal that promises he will see us all the way through. All the way home. So that though we eat meals to go right now, someday we will eat at home with our brothers and sisters and our father. For now, we practice grace together. Because like Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, and now we are alive. Not because of water, bread, and wine, but because of the grace of God in Christ. We receive his grace as a gift by faith, how much it cost him, how expensive it was. And it is at baptism and communion that God has has commanded us to remember and rehearse the grace that saved us. That God communicates his grace to us and shapes us by his grace as we identify with each other and with him. As we remember together and as we proclaim together the gospel of grace that has saved us. Remember your baptism. Familia eats together. These truths leave us in awe of the God who saved us. They lead us in worship, in gratitude, overwhelmed by his grace to his throne. And yes, they drive us to obedience, works that he has prepared for us to do. And part of that obedience is to be baptized and to take communion together, not as religious rituals, but as gifts of his grace. 
as the means by which God communicates and shapes us with his grace. And so I want to invite you into one of those means of grace this morning. We, we watched the testimonies of our brothers and sisters across our extended family already, and now I want us to, alongside that same family, to take communion together. Now, some of you might have been surprised. It might have been thrown off with your calendar when you walked in. Is, are, we, are we in March already? That's what David said when he walked into me. <laughs> I'm doing this because as we're talking about this, I want us to participate in this. Because to be honest, this preaches better than I would. When you came in, you should have received the sealed cup. And I'm, I'm going to lead it. We're going to lead together as a family, but they can be tricky to open. So I'm going to ask you to actually open them all together, the bread and the cup, so we can all be ready together, all right? So this is the crinkling time. If you didn't get some, they're in the back. We can get you some. All right, family, you ready? I hear crinkling. Ready to go? All right, as we prepare to sit at the table of Christ by faith, we remember that Jesus gave us this gift to identify with him and to with each other as true family to remind us of what he has done for us to make us into family and as a promise that he will return at this table, we proclaim his gospel until he returns. He is, he is with us at this table by his spirit and he reminds us that he is our true spiritual food. That He is the bread of life. And so with all that in mind, I want to remind you that this is a table for sinners saved by grace through faith. That this is a meal for all who have confessed their sins before Christ and have received his forgiveness. And so if you're here and you haven't done that yet, I want to invite you to do that. You've heard the gospel today. There's not a single one of us that can leave this room and on earth or in eternity say that we didn't hear the gospel now. If you have not believed, I urge you to receive the free gift of God's grace. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Your, your sins are forgiven in Christ, that you were dead in your sins, but in Christ you can be made alive. Believe and confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And then I want to invite you to take and eat with us, to drink with us. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 29, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, they eat. don't believe that passage means believe in Jesus before you eat. But if you do believe, that passage means recognizing that you still fight with sin. And that by the Spirit and through confession, you can overcome sin and take communion, not as some special magic trick to cover you, but as a means of God's grace to you. As a way that God communicates His grace. As a way of acknowledging and depending on His in Christ. And so before we take, I want us to take a moment to confess and repent silently before the Lord, whether for the first time believing in Jesus or for the hundredth millionth time repenting and trusting in him. Let's take a moment of silence.